0: You're listening to the Auxiliary Gate Podcast, Kentucky's weekly horse racing discussion. And now, here are your hosts, Alan Schneider, Brandon Jaggers, and me, C.C. Broaddus. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of the Auxiliary Gate Podcast. I'm C.C. Broaddus. And joined by my pals, Mr. Alan Schneider.
1: Hello, everyone. I hope you're warm wherever you're at, because we haven't been.
0: And Mr. Brandon Jaggers.
2: Hey, guys. Good evening. I'm glad we got Craig back on the line after the hiatus of last week. <laughs> no doubt. So,
0: so I want to congratulate you guys. You did a good job in my absence last week. Uh, it, it was a great podcast. Uh, enjoyed to get to the uh, – enjoyed to – uh, getting to know the connections of Obesos, who ran a huge fourth in the Risen Star Stakes, his first uh, his first attempt around two turns, and uh, and and against uh, stakes company. I think he did a good
1: job, Alan. Yeah he, yeah, he he looked. The the concern there was that the horse was a a sprinter stretching out, and he ran like a horse, just like a horse uh, does that. T. He made a move like a sprinter does, and he kind of one pace down the stretch a little bit against some better horses. I thought it was a heck of a try. The horse has a big future. Uh, I, we'll see what the, the connections do in the future. But uh, Foley and Mister Bernard have a have a
2: nice horse in their hands, and I'm excited to see what's next. Yeah, and I think that horse only had four starts, so lot, I think a lot more to come. A mile and an eighth is always a challenge after six six furlongs. That's that's a big feat, but to get, you know, fourth place in the Risen Star behind Amanda Loon. You know, Amanda Loon that day had blinkers, so maybe a little tack change on that horse, uh, as well as Proxy. It was another great horse in Midnight Bourbon. So congratulations to Brian Bernard, Travis Foley, and the Foley Barn, uh, and, and we appreciate them being on the 40th episode last night. Last week. That's right, last, last, last week. Thanks for the correction. <laughs> anyway,
0: all right, well, we've got a special guest tonight, and – uh we're pretty excited about this and uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll get uh, educated for sure. But uh, you know, uh, with no further ado, let's let's get right to our, our special guest. Uh, our guest tonight needs no introduction. He's he's at the top of his game right now, but but how he arrived there was not by mistake. Uh, while attending LSU, our guest began working for, for trainer Frank Brothers, legendary trainer Frank Brothers, after graduating from LSU in 1983 with a marketing degree. He worked for Larry Robodeau and later for John Parasella in New York before going out on his own in 1987. His long list of accomplishments as a trainer include victories in the New Orleans handicap, the Cornhusker handicap, the Apple Blossom, the La Troy the Maker's Mark Mile. The list goes on and on. He's trained an enviable group of excuse me, an enviable group of fast horses, including Heritage of Gold, Some of the Parts, Williams News. Sky Blue Pink. Alan. you remember Sky Blue Pink back in the
1: 90s? I, cer- I certainly do. That. I'm, a, I'm that old. Yes, I do remember yeah, that horse. She was a fast filly
0: for sure. My loot, Lone Sailor, and many, many more. He reached the pinnacle of, of his profession, though, in 2019 when he trained the brilliant filly, excuse me, the brilliant filly, Serengeti Empress, to a front-running victory in the Kentucky Oaks in 2019. Never to be found without an opinion. In addition to his training duties, you can find him on, on Fox Sports One. Especially in the summer, picking winners at Saratoga, working with the likes of Andy Serling, Maggie Wolfendale, and the Fee Pin Kai Third. In 2020, our guests won the Big Sport of Turfdom Award, a laurel that is given to a person or group that enhances the coverage of Third Red Racing through cooperation with the media and publicists. This award has been won in previous years by the likes of Penny Shinnery, Gary Stevens, Pat Day, Bob Baffert, and Angel Cordero. As a trainer, He's won nearly 4,000 races, and his runners have earned over $100 million. We are thrilled to have on the auxiliary gate for the first time, Mr. Tom Amos. Tom, how are you doing?
3: I'm doing great. Thank you so much for that introduction. It makes me feel good after getting beat a couple of times as a prohibitive favorite here at the fairgrounds today, so you've you picked my spirits up. <laughs> well,
0: we, were, we weren't going to talk about that, but uh, you know, <laughs> since you brought it up, you know. No, no seriously, I, Tom, I, I want to talk to you. Uh, uh let's get down to serious business first uh okay uh this is a pretty serious question Uh, let's go back about six or seven years i met you at indiana grand (laughs) we had a horse running up there that day and i think we were running against you and at the time you were also training a horse that i bred in partnership with some friends and i i stopped you to ask you how the horse was doing i grabbed your arm and none of that really matters but the fact that i grabbed your arm I noticed that you're really buff. <laughs> I'm like, nice. Like, I'm like, dude, whatever you do, don't piss this guy off. Cause he, he <laughs> if you got me down, you might, I may not be able to get back up. So my, my first question to you is, do you lift weights or do you, do you pump iron or what, what's the deal?
3: <laughs> well, you caught me off guard with this one. I didn't know where you were headed, but, uh, <laughs> look, I, I, I try to stay in shape. I'm 59 years old. Uh, you know, and so I—I uh, I, I mean, as much as the stress of training horses and all the things that go into it, um, it's good to have an outlet. So uh, I do try to stay in shape, but uh, <laughs> I've never been called buffed. So I'll—I'll—I'll—I'll I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll make sure my wife knows that I'm buffed when we get off the phone.
0: I, that's just an observation, you know. We're not going <laughs> further than that. I mean. It's like this guy must be back there bench pressing horses or something, you know? But- <laughs> Hardly, yeah. Well, Tom, I want to take you back. I I was looking through your your list of uh, victories and stakes victories that you'd won over the years, and I saw that you had won the Cornhusker handicap with a horse mm-hmm. named Link back in nineteen ninety three. Now refresh my memory is was that one of the last editions
3: of that race that was held at Exarbin? I believe it was the last edition. Uh, I remember that race really well. So, uh, you know, oftentimes when a trainer is running in a a race outside the jurisdiction, he's training, you know, he's not always going to be present for it. He'll send an assistant or something like that. But our stable is, uh, you know, always remained around the same size. We're, we're good with the size we're at. We're not as good when the stable gets bigger. So we limit it. And, uh, and so I'm able to kind of, uh, You know, micromanage, which I think is what we do as a stable very well. And um, Link went to Nebraska from Shreveport, Louisiana, to run that race. And um, two days before the race, he was lame in his left front, and it was his foot. So he had a foot issue two days before the race, and um, it looked doubtful that we were going to get to run. And, um, you know, one thing trainers always do is reflect on situations they've had in the past – and people they've encountered in the past so you mentioned that i worked for frank brothers and uh frank was a disciple of jack Vanberg and our big blacksmith that worked around the country for us and dealt with all our problems horses was a guy named jack reynolds and jack reynolds was uh as frank used to say shoeing horses is a lost art you know nowadays it's tack the shoe on that's it but you know jack reynolds is an artist so uh i i Got Jack's number, and I called him, and he lived in Kansas. And he got in his truck, and he came to visit Link at Exarvin in Nebraska. And um, he looked at his foot, and he said, I, think I can help us here. He changed some things on his uh, foot. We shot him, and he was sound the next day. So we were able to run the Corn Husker And not only did we run it, but we won it. And um, that race, that victory, it belongs to Jack Reynolds for sure. And um, Jack's gone now, but uh, but he was a fabulous person and uh, and a great blacksmith. I won't ever forget that race for all the things that went into it, including who presented the winning trophy afterwards. It was Bill Clinton's mom so Bill Clinton's oh. mom loved wow. horse racing and um, and she um, presented the winning trophy to us and afterwards there was a party uh, at Exarban. she was there, and I can tell you I know where bill clinton got his personality from his mom was a wonderful wonderful lady i fell in love with her I, I just thought you know she had the ability to make you feel like you were the only person in the room and i remember hearing that same thing said about bill clinton uh, later in life so uh it was a wonderful uh race my wife and i got to attend it uh together and um we had a wonderful time not only winning but spending time with uh bill's bill's mom afterwards
0: so Axarbin's uh, not in existence anymore. It was a, for those who don't know, that was a popular track in Nebraska back in the day. Uh, Nebraska spelled backwards is Axarbin. Uh, Tom, do you have any specific memories of that racetrack?
3: I do. So it was, uh, it, it was an old school racetrack in the sense that it was big, it had a big, wide grandstand, and by the time that I got there with Link, things were starting to slow down in Nebraska, and they just and also casino gambling right across the river for Arvin, and That's what did it in. Uh, so um, I, I knew it had a tremendous history. Back in 1979 when I was a senior in high school, I went to my first Kentucky Derby with uh, uh, my good friend Al Stahl. Uh, we were uh, high school classmates and of course everybody knows Al's a very good trainer in his own right. And uh, we went to a party at Jack Bamberg's house uh, or his farm in Kentucky and Jack's family, his his dad specifically Marion Bamberg, they had tremendous roots at Exarbin, and I remember walking in and he had a couple of corn husker trophies, which were really tall. They're like four feet tall, and on the sides of them, supporting the trophies, you worked your way up to the horse at the top, ears of corn. I thought that was so unique and weird, and then here I am, I, I get to win the same race many years later.
0: Wow. wow! Wow, that's that's fantastic. Hey, hey, Brandon, uh, you want to step in here? I know you've got a lot of questions for Tom.
2: Yeah, Tom, I told you we throw you a couple of wrenches there, but those are only great memories. And and thank you, Craig. Those are great topics. And uh, Tom, I won't be grabbing your arm anytime soon unless we're victorious <laughs> in, a, in a race. <laughs> uh,
3: Sounds good. Look, uh, when I win a race, everything's fair game. You know, um, uh, it doesn't matter what kind of race it is. Look, I, I really enjoy the competition. Uh, I get excited for any race. Um, one of my greatest memories in my first year of training and still one of my top five favorite horses of all time was a horse named Sweet Agarita. And this was a horse that they couldn't get to even win a bottom level claiming race. And, uh, she was, uh, when I got her, she'd had four or five tries and never even hit the board. And um, I was just starting out, so I didn't have a lot of horses. And they gave me a chance with her. And uh, she won 9 of 11 that year. Uh, so uh, so I'll never forget what a trier she was and how we kind of found her secret. And so, you know, training horses, sometimes you get a horse and you really don't know what makes them better. I'm, I'm sitting at my computer right now and I'm looking at my screensaver. It's a picture of. Delaney winning the Churchill Downs handicap. You know, we claimed him and he won a number of stakes for us after that and was considered one of the top spurs in the country, particularly right after he won the Churchill Downs handicap. I never knew what made him better under our care, but but something clicked. But with Sweet Agarita, it was about her. He was a very nervous filly. We, got her in the barn, and one of the first days we had her, we just brought her out to put some shoes on her, which is very routine for a horse, and she fell apart. She started sweating, and, you know, she just she needed the care and patience of someone that was not going to make her feel like everything was a rush, and we were able to do that, convey that to her, and it, it gained her confidence, and it made her a very good racehorse.
2: That's a great story. Well, Tom, tonight we want to talk a little bit about outside the track and kind of some of the things that you probably are very, you know, in tune with and things that you're dealing with, you know, outside of training. So, you know, one of which hopefully you got to listen to your good friend Joel and our podcast a couple episodes back and uh, and talking about Serengeti Empress and those great times. It was a great, great interview with him. But tell us a little bit about kind of what you're doing a little differently at, at yearling sales, maybe the last couple of years and maybe with Joel and others.
3: Yeah, so we got to go back in time a little bit, um, and it's fair to say that when Joel and I started together, uh, you know, our success was modest. Uh, it wasn't like we accomplished, you know, the kind of things that would bond a trainer and an owner. Um, and really, that's that's how it is in racing. You know, you're you're looking for uh, teamwork that results in you know um, wins. That's, there's no other way to put it. I mean, you know, horse trainers are like you know, coaches, whether you pick football, basketball, baseball, doesn't matter. You know, we're like coaches. And if you win, you know, you're, you're, you're going to, you're going to find yourself, you know, doing more and more stuff for people. And if you don't win, you know, you're not. So it's, um, it's a great deal of pressure on winning races. And for Joel and I, Joel was very patient in trying to make the process work for him. And, uh, he's a horseman in his own account too. I mean, Joel, Joel's the kind of guy that, that knows what he's doing. He's been around it his whole life. So he may be a doctor. Hey, Tom, I
2: think we're losing you there. there. Uh-oh. Are you moving around or?
3: No, I'm still sitting right here. There you go. Yeah. Perfect. You're good. Perfect. So Perfect. I'll just go back a little bit. So Mr. Benson, um, through Greg Benson, decided to pick three New Orleans trainers to use um, for making purchases of the yearling sale. Alstall, myself, and Dallas Stewart. He gave us a budget and we all went to the sale. So not only were you, you know, trying to do as good as you could for him, but now you had the pressure of competing against, you know, your friends, but also your 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 trainer friends, in seeing who could do better than the next. And Ooh. out of that initial sale came uh, two Kentucky Derby starters, one for me, Mo Tom, and one for Dallas as well, Tom's and so they, in their very first year of buying yearlings, they put two horses in the gate for the Kentucky Derby. And then although Al didn't have a horse in the Kentucky Derby that year, he ended up maybe having the best horse of all in Tom's to Todd. All three of those horses were bought the same year for Tom Benson. Wow. And, uh, you know, we, and, and also for his wife, Gail, excuse me, I can't believe I didn't say that, but I want to mention, <laughs> not only mention her, she's, she's a big part of it all. So, um, so it was a very successful year at the yearling sales. And um that year really made me develop what I wanted as a plan to buy yearlings. And so uh when I came back the next year, we had another good year. You mentioned Lone Sailor. That was for Mr. Benson as well. And then, uh, of course, for Joel Pellini. And And the thing about Joel's horse, Serengeti Empress, was she wasn't on anybody's radar. I mean, she was you know, by the Keeneland standards, the Keeneland sales standards, an off-bred horse. I mean, her sire was alternation. He never even won a grade one stake, which is usually a prerequisite for being a sire. And uh and the mayor was modest in what she'd accomplished. So um when we went and saw her, I, I immediately knew she was one for us. Uh very athletic uh horse she was. And so um We had made a budget for about $100,000 to spend on her, and we didn't have to spend that. We spent about $70,000. You know, that purchase was a turning point in my career. Uh, So I like to say, or I used to say, that, you know, uh, I found her. I found Serengeti Empress. But, you know, now that her career is over and she's going to be a mom and she left the racetrack as sound as the day she walked in, which I'm very proud of. Uh, I now say that Serengeti Empress and I, we found each other because for me, she provided, you know, a chance to really hit the big stage and to really, you know, do a rare thing uh, to win, you know, the Kentucky Derby for Phillies, the Kentucky Oaks at Churchill Downs and and, and, and all the adulation and everything that comes with that win. Uh, but for her, You know in a lot of bigger stables she would have been lost you know she wasn't well bred uh, by a lot of people's standards she was a diamond in the rough and i think the fact that she made it to a smaller stable where you know we looked after her and really paid attention to different things to decide what she was or wasn't and gave her every opportunity to succeed on the big stage uh, it just worked out well for both of us and i guess when you hear me talk you kind of hear me talking about her like she's a person and you know what by the time she had won the kentucky oaks she was a part of the family no question about it she was always in the first stall next to the office we had a great relationship uh she was a pro on the track did everything right uh, in the afternoons part of my routine is when the horses have been fed late in the day around 4 30 or 5 o'clock depending upon where we are i always walk the barn in the quiet and just look at the horses in their stalls take a few notes maybe some things i saw in training that morning that i'd Forgotten to make note of, and I put it down on a piece of paper. Look at the overall health of the horses, the brightness of coat, how they're eating, all those things. And I couldn't walk past her stall without her demanding her peppermints. And she demands her peppermints
1: huh.
3: by pawing her front leg. And uh, you know, I give her a peppermint. Well, that's not good enough. She's got to have two. Uh, so uh, she gets two peppermints every evening and a few during the course of the day. But uh, I'm talking about her now it makes me miss her. But uh, she's very happy as a mom at TaylorMade. I can tell you that.
2: That's great, Tom. Well, thank you. And uh, great story. And if everybody uh, wants to go back in the archives, they could find that episode just two weeks ago. So uh, switching gears, though, you know, kind of going back with kind of what's coming out of COVID and and the stimulus plans and kind of the state of the union Mm -hmm. of of horse racing, a big piece Mm -hmm. of legislation was finally passed. Federal legislation, or the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act, uh, that'll go in effect uh, come July 1st of 2022. Uh, What are your What are your thoughts behind this this uh, regulatory body that's set up? Well, I'm I'm hopeful, and I and I do think it's needed.
3: Uh, You know, I I listened to the TDN podcast with uh, the gentleman that's now going to run it, and um, and his introduction and him talking about it, and certainly he's someone that's going to need to be brought to speed on what's happening in the industry. I was caught off guard by a few of his comments, uh, but in fairness, you know, he's probably somebody that needs to get a better education of the thoroughbred industry than what he currently has. And he said as much in, in talking about, you know, um, how he's looking forward to the job. Um, but I can't emphasize enough that, that we need it. You know, there was, I was one of those people that, you know, look, I, I, one of the things you forgot to mention in my resume was that I was a vet assistant for a year. Uh, I did that in New Orleans. It was a great learning experience. We got to go to people's barns. We, tra- we did for all the major trainers. We worked for all the major trainers. And and the, the things that the major trainers couldn't dissect or understand about their horse, they were bringing the vet in. So I always loved uh, those those puzzles of looking at a horse and trying to figure out what was wrong. Uh, Frankie Brothers had a horse named West, West, I think it was Westmeister. He won the New Orleans Handicap. He was a chestnut with white feet, and, uh, and, and sometimes white feet are very soft feet. And they kept having situations with, where his heel met the leg, what we call cracked heels on his feet, and they were extremely painful to him. And uh, they tried everything with this horse, uh, and they couldn't figure out how to cure him And, uh, you know, my experience having groomed for Frankie, I knew the procedures and everything that we did. And one of the things we used to do is we used to put uh, some sulfur in our bath water and our rinse water to keep skin disease off the horses. But it wasn't regulated. You just had it in a gallon jug. You poured it in there. Sometimes you pour a little. Sometimes you pour a lot. But it's an irritant. And uh, I'll never forget, we were looking at that horse and got back in the truck to go to the next barn. And I told uh, my boss, I said, I know how to cure that horse and he said how i said he's got to quit putting that sulfur in the bath water it's irritating those legs and it's causing those uh, legs to crack the heels man he put that car in reverse so fast parked in front of that barn walked in that barn and told frank brothers i know how to cure your horse <laughs> so, i didn't get the credit for it i didn't get the credit for it but uh, it, it all worked out
2: yeah you know. well, what do you think about some of the lasix changes with the two-year-olds and three-year-olds and I mean there's just kind of every racing state now has kind of different calls on some of that it seems like. Right. What, what how would right. you kind of take it with shipping horses and trying to keep up with all these different changes? So we're going to talk
3: not so much about this new authority that's coming in because I think they're important. I I do think, you know, I was reflecting on a story about one horse, but I think they're important because back then, and even through my training career, I never ever Thought that you know cheating was something that was happening in our industry. I never thought that. And believe me, I'm on the front lines. I see it all. You know, uh, but 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 my opinion has changed, and um, oh. and I do think that 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 is going on. And I think it needs to be not only stopped, but I think uh, we need somebody that can enforce those rules. So um, we'll get back to that in a second. But I just want to make it clear that I am for this new authority come in but now we're going to talk about lasix and uh look i know i'm going to get pushback on this and that's fine uh you know you you're not going to sit here and talk a person into liking lasix that thinks they shouldn't have it just like you're not going to talk a person like myself that thinks LASIKs is useful into saying oh yeah lasix we shouldn't have it so it's it's a really polarizing thing and um and i understand that but um you know, In this short period of time since this has started, so it started with our two-year-olds uh, this summer, all two-year-olds, and now it's, it's, it's any stake races for three-year-olds. You can't use it. And so there, there's two things at play here. Number one, it muddies the water on past performance. A horse that ran good with Lasix all of a sudden isn't on Lasix, and some horses are affected by that, and then the form goes off. And you're, you're trying to bet on these horses with a past performance that, that may be useless based on medication that that is a handicapping problem and you know yes. look you can you can say whatever you like about LASIKs, but you better recognize one thing for sure racing and racing persons what we run for is based on one thing and one thing only and that is what is bet on those races you start having races like this where nobody understands what the outcome may or not may or may not be based on LASIKs that we could use and now we can't use, it gets to be ridiculous. And so, you know, that right there should make people wake up. But, you know, and 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 look, I'm guilty of this too. You think in your own perspective. So I'm thinking from a trainer's perspective, and people that are against LASIKs are thinking from their perspective. But no one, as usual, is taking the handicapper's perspective. The handicappers, for whatever reason, are the weakest link of our industry in getting their voice heard, and they should be the most powerful. You know? So I really don't understand why they're the weakest and why there isn't a strong unity to make you know, that group uh, a much stronger force than what we decided to do in racing. That's the first thing. The second thing is – you know, you mentioned John Parasello. Well, John Parasello is a trainer in New York. So I was in New York in 1987 as an assistant trainer, and Lasix was not allowed in New York back then. It was allowed in other jurisdictions, but it wasn't allowed in New York. So I saw, you know, the effects of no Lasix on the backside of a racetrack. I saw all the horses that bleed, and I saw all the methods we tried to get them to stop bleeding and the amount of money we spent free race on a horse that a $10 shot of Lasix would have cured, you know, and we could have gotten it done. But but that's not the way it went. I'm seeing that starting to happen again. I'm see, I'm seeing the backside, you know, having to do things with their horses, spend much more money on their horses just to try to simulate what a shot of LASIKs does. Uh, so uh, those two things to me are, are, are pretty pretty, uh, what's the right word? I mean, I, I could see it coming a mile away, but 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 they're, they're, they're real problems for our industry. And, you know, finally I'll say that, you know, I hate to say the horse has already left the barn, but, you know, we're now seeing jurisdictions, Keeneland, Churchill Fairgrounds just recently, uh, scoping the horses that are not running on Lasix. In other words, they're putting an endoscope down the horse's throat, looking into the lungs to see if they bled, to get an indication of how many horses are actually bleeding in races. Should have been done a long time ago. Should have been, the jurisdiction should have said, hey, this needs to be done, and that's everybody's fault. It's the horseman's fault for not saying, hey, come on, we need to see how real bleeding is. You know, you look at all these studies that are out there, they're slanted this way or that way, depending on who wants to present them and who's backing them. But we need a real study to show if horses are really bleeding and get the answer. You know, am I right in what I'm thinking? Well, that study would suggest yes or no. And I'm willing to stand by those kind of studies. But here we are phasing LASIKs out and doing it as we phase LASIKs out. That seems very counterintuitive to me.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of people would agree with you as well, and and the handicappers, that's kind of how we started a while back, you know, 60, 50 weeks ago as as just general handicappers, and then really starting to pick up the vibe of the industry and the changes that it kept ongoing and ongoing, and so I really love your perspective about that, and and really more to come. Uh, One other topic I wanted to bring up, and, and we had talked a little bit about it, is kind of the consolidation of barns and you know, what is left of the little trainers that are out there? Because during COVID, a lot of the small guys, you know, seem to have hung up, hung up the saddle and, and went to do other things. And, you know, what, what is that creating with, with other barns? I know it doesn't affect you per se, but you know, when, when 200 or 300 two-year-olds go to one barn, uh, you know, what, what's left? Well, that's, that's a great question. So, uh,
3: and and it's one that's been on my mind quite a bit. So, uh first of all, let me just say that whether a two year old comes to me or goes to another guy, uh that's has nothing to do with the point I'm gonna make right now. Uh we we do just fine. So, you know, I'm not in competition with any of the large trainers necessarily for for their business. So that has nothing to do with what I'm gonna say, but we are seeing a real consolidation of the young horses that are coming to the track, going to just a few trainers. And why that is a problem is because those trainers only have a few spots to run those horses in in a given month. Um, Mm -hmm. For example, if you have 200 maidens, but Churchill Downs writes a maiden race every 10 days, then those 200 maidens, only a very small portion get to run that race. Now, if those 200 maidens Were spread out amongst 20 trainers or 30 trainers, even 40 trainers, well, then they would all have that spot. But a trainer can only enter one or two in a race. So this consolidation is a problem. And it's not only a problem for the two-year-olds, it's been going on for a couple of years. So those horses get older So then three, four, and five. So there's a major consolidation of horses in the larger stables. Now, my hat's off to those guys. They've done a great job. And so they're popular and people want them as a trainer, and that's the way it should be. That's free enterprise. But the way it becomes a problem is when the tracks produce races to run and they can't either fill them or they fill them with a small field because the consolidation of the horses that potentially would enter in those races are all consolidated in in those barns. They're not spread out. So you get small fields. Handle is based on field size, embedding, and smaller fields do not produce good handle. So it's preying on itself. And if you're one of those trainers that has a real large group of horses, and you're not at least thinking about how this might be a problem for the future, not only for yourself, because the races won't go for your horses, or keeping the business alive by having as many trainers as possible participating, you're just not paying attention to what's happening. So yeah, that, that is a real worry. I, I don't have the answer for it. The, that's, that's above my pay grade, but, uh, but, but yes,
2: that is a real concern of mine. Well, let's, let's move back, uh, toward the track, towards the dirt, towards the turf. Uh, Craig Allen, you got to have some questions for Tom.
0: Hey Alan, why don't you go first?
2: Oh, actually I follow up on your point
1: just a moment ago, Tom, is that why we see so many, uh, some of these bigger barns will give up uh, give up on a horse after a race or two and drop them in for thirty thousand, fifty thousand. It's not that the horse can't run; they just don't have room for them in their in their massive stables. Is that what we is that what we're seeing a lot when they drop them in well, the maiden claiming I, I, pretty quickly?
3: Yeah, I can't speak to that. I don't know what goes in the thoughts of other trainers as to why they run their horse here or there. And they certainly don't do it without the consent of the person that owns that horse uh so i i don't know the answer to that um i will say that i do see um uh, when those moves are made um uh, oftentimes because i i do claim horses i like to look at who the owner is for that trainer is it an important owner by that i mean does he have a bunch of horses is mm-hmm. it a guy that just has one horse with that owner you know that leads me to believe what the reason for the drop might be if it was an important owner, I'm less likely to think this is a move to win a race. This is a move because they don't think the horse is that good. If it's not such an important owner, maybe maybe they're just looking at the horse. And and I hate to put it in that perspective. Every owner is very important in our stable, and I think they probably are in everyone else's stable. But you know, if it's a horse that won't be missed, you know, maybe that's a better way to put it.
1: Then then maybe that's why the move is made. Gotcha. Well, I'll tell you a horse that uh, I personally think isn't going anywhere anytime soon for you that I wanted to bring up. You've got a lot of nice three-year-olds right now. I think that's fair to say. You had a big weekend over the weekend at the fairgrounds. But the horse I want to talk about is Defeater. Defeater, uh, it's funny the horse's name, Defeater. He did get defeated on Saturday, but the effort that horse put in, making the move on the turn and just this long, sustained drive to the wire where he almost caught a runaway winner in that race. Uh, is there as big things for this horse in the future as I, as I believe there is from what I saw on the racetrack the other day?
3: I certainly hope so. Uh, so Defeater, he won his initial start uh, right at the beginning of the year and it was going in a sprint race. And so we were making that transition to two turns with him. And, uh, it really caught me off guard that he, uh, was as far back as he was. He's never been a good gate horse, but I, I didn't think he'd be that far back in, in, in the race. And, um, uh, You know, on a lot of days where the races, they have a lot of big races like they did this past weekend at the fairgrounds, the track is really geared towards speed and carrying horses. And he was one of the very few that day to close. You could make a case that Maxfield closed uh, that day, but he didn't close like Defeater. Defeater came from almost last. So his race was very impressive. I agree with you, and I think there's big, big things in his future.
1: I mean, he's eligible for 1X still, but, I mean – there's a, couple of, there's a big race coming up at the fairgrounds in a few weeks, and there's a couple other big races coming up. Uh, I mean, it, it, I know it's too far ahead to, to start talking like that, but uh, I think this horse has potential. I, I can see where you might be excited for this one. So. Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah. You know, look, I've won just about every race there is at the fairgrounds, but I've never won the Louisiana Derby. I've come close. I've been beaten as the favorite. I've been beaten as a long shot right on the wire. Uh, that, that's, that's
1: one I really want one day. Well, I don't know who I'm taking in that one if he were to run. But anyway, uh, CC, you want to uh, hit Tom over the couple of horses real quick?
0: Yeah. Well, just a couple. I want to first of all congratulate you with the job you did with Little Tootsie. Uh, stretching out in her third start, and 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 she settled well. She's coming out of those sprint races, and she relaxed and and shot through the rail. Uh, you you have any thoughts on on where you're going next with her? And 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 I mean, just
3: just an outstanding job with that filly. Well, it's, it's, it's about her. She's really talented. Um, you know, we knew she was a talented sprinter That's that she's owned by Joel Politi. Uh, we knew she was a talented sprinter. Um, you know, two turns at transition, you always want to, you know, have it backed by pedigree. And with her pedigree, it was a question mark. Um, again, she was very fast in her day, uh, second start as a sprinter and in the one she won. So I figured her to be prominent. Uh, in the stretch out to two turns early in the race. She wasn't, she broke kind of flat footed and she made a huge run at the end. And um, look, we grade our races uh, through a speed figure as most people do. Speed figure we like to use is called uh, Ragazin uh, which is a very sophisticated one. Um, And it's one that I think is the best out there. And her Ragazin speed figure graded exceptionally high in that route race. So we're really excited about her.
0: Okay. What about uh, no parole? No parole came back uh, last week in in one of the premier sprint at Delta Downs. Uh, ran a big Equibase number. I'm just looking at the numbers on Equibase here, and, and he, he ran a 114. What are your your short term and long term goals for him?
3: So he's he's a really really good sprinter, uh, no question about it. And um, you know our our goals for him are to try to make it to the end of the year. We were trying to do that. As a three-year-old, it did work out, as it often doesn't. Horses need breaks. He needed a break. That race he ran in was a comeback race from last year, and he ran really well. So it's a great starting point. But, you know, like with any horse, we'd like to see him in the Breeders' Cup sprint, if possible, at the end of the year. Wow.
0: Okay, guys, uh, Brandon or Alan, you got any more questions for Tom? I've got one more, but I'm going to wait till the end.
2: Well, Tom, you know we loved uh, watching you on FS1, and we get to hope well, hope you're, you're coming back. Uh, I like to just tell all the viewers I compared you to to the Tony Romo of NFL calling. That's <laughs> oh, wow. A great, a great. Uh, I can see it on the horse racing, and you even called one of our Phillies races, and I thought your comments were spot on. And this is before I even got to know you. And, and just for the the audience, let me tell you how ni- nice Tom is. Uh, I met him out in Louisville uh, one night on Bardstown Road at a little restaurant and I knew it was him and so I, as they were walking out I didn't want to bother his meal or anything and, and as he's walking out I went over there and, and greeted him and introduced him to my you know and to what who I am you know the little what I know about horse racing and so on and so he said why don't you come back to the barn sometime and so I was like yeah great you know I, I go back there from time to time to check on the filly here or there and and so I, I did and I missed Tom, but I wrote him a little note and, you know, two hours later, I get a nice phone call and message from Tom. And I just thought from that day, you're a total gentleman. So I only want to wish the best for you. I, I'd love to have a great horse and, and you get the trainer, you know, but I got to ask about 10 other people to switch that. So maybe one day when I'm on my own and I hit my lottery or a Serengeti Emperance on my own, I, I'd love to have a couple of horses with you. So, but thank you. Well, I remember that. Uh,
3: I think the restaurant was ceviche. I'm, I'm not positive, but I think that's where we were.
2: Uh, yep, you're 100. Uh, percent I don't want to give it away because everybody will start going to ceviche to see you. <laughs> no, well, that's a good spot. <laughs> definitely.
0: All right, Tom. Before we go, I just I have one more question. It's, it's a quick one. What's it like to work with Andy Serling?
3: Well, <laughs> let's see, uh, Andy, good friends, but. Um, When we get on the air together, uh, I think there's a certain competitiveness about trying to bring about as much knowledge as we can put into any given race. So on the one hand, Andy makes me work very hard because you don't prepare. Andy will frickin own you on the air. He doesn't (laughs) mind. He does not mind embarrassing you. Okay. so uh, and you know what? That's fine by me uh, because because, you know. Look, I, I want to be pushed. I want, I want to, you know, I want to feel like I better know my stuff when I go on there. So we had, we had a, uh, we had a moment. Uh, Lafitte was hosting, and uh, and they were talking about uh, Tom Durkin, and uh, Andy was giving uh, his thoughts on Tom Durkin, who had retired, and they were getting ready to come to us. So our mics were were down, and Lafitte said, "Do you have a favorite Tom Durkin story?" And I said, yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, I wasn't expecting that. That wasn't in the outline that we were going to do that. So I said, yeah, sure. So he comes back to me. He goes, Tom, do you have a favorite Tom Durkin story? And I said, you know, when I graduated from college in 1983, my parents said, you know, what would you like for a graduation present? And I said, I want to go to Saratoga. I've never been. So I got to take a friend. I took my friend Al Stahl, who still, he had another semester in school we went to Saratoga and uh, they ran a horse in debuting and when they called the race, the announcer was so clever. The horse's name was if you look at it on paper, which you know, all handicappers do we'll is the name of the horse. You had to stop for a second to think how to pronounce it. The horse is all one word. dum de-dumb, dee was the name of the horse. So when the announcer got, and the horse won, but when the announcer got to the race, he always pretended like he was stumbling. And that's Dumb, and he paused, de-dumb, de-dumb. And he had the crowd eating out of his hand. I mean, everybody <laughs> was laughing during the course of the race. So that's just really clever, right? So I tell that story, and Andy just cannot wait when I finish the story to say, uh, Tom, Tom Durkin wasn't announcing race in 1983. That was Marshall Cassidy. So he was a complete ass on the air, right? You know? So I was like, all right, he got me. You know, but, uh, but look, Andy and I are friends, uh, and, um, and I enjoy his company more off the air than on
1: the air. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs>
0: well, Tom, we, we enjoy your work with, uh, with Fox and, uh, we're big fans of your, your training prowess. And we, we've bet a lot of money on your horses over the years. And we we're, 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 we're very grateful. We're very grateful that you, uh, you joined us this evening and, uh, uh, Tom, we'll let you go on that note. Uh, but like I said, uh, we we'd be glad to have you anytime,
3: gentlemen. It was my pleasure. Get me back on after I win a big one, okay? You got it, you got it, you
1: got it, my man.
3: Sounds good. Thank you. That's right. Tom Amos, everybody.
0: Well, that was outstanding, Tom's Tom is a a great talker, and he's a good representative of the sport uh, for sure. Uh, guys, let's talk about the weekend. This is not a lot going on except the uh, the twenty million dollars Saudi Cup is going to feature Nick's Go versus Charlatan with a few other Americans sprinkled in, uh, outside of that, you know, turfways canceled, Oakland's canceled. There's not a lot of stakes <laughs> races. Uh, but Alan, uh, next weekend should be, uh, should be a lot more fun, right?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, uh, we think the Bataglia is going next week, uh, at turfway, but as we'll cover it. And what else we got going on next week? The Southwest is being the, rescheduled the Southwest the-
0: and, and, the, fountain of and youth. the
1: fountain of youth. Yeah. yeah should if, be great, if, great if these, weekend. if these tracks can get it going, and hopefully they can. The weather around here, for folks that don't know, is supposed to improve. We've been through the worst of it. We're starting to come out of it. But uh, Oakland and Turfway, and I believe Aqueduct, too, is, has really taken a hit. As much, I think Sam Houston as well, too. Obviously, Texas is in a lot of trouble. But if we can get through this week, we've got a lot to look forward to. And but we're looking forward to these races. Hopefully,
0: this turf, this new uh, Tapita Turfway will drain <coughs> a little bit better. You remember back in the days, uh, you know it would be like 10 degrees – on, and that poly track would freeze up and they'd cancel the racing and then like three days later it'd be like 60 degrees and, <coughs> yeah. and they'd still they'd still cancel the racing we be like why are you canceling the racing is well, it well did it, it drain too hard or something like that you know I'll, hopefully the, hopefully won't have those kind of problems next week
1: but i've been to turplay in the old poly track and it was like 10 degrees and i thought i was going to on a wasted trip and they ran so you, you never used to know but i understand why they're doing it now Instead, so, it's a new surface so Uh, I'm looking forward to get back on on track with that, but I'm looking forward to all these derby preps really start to kick in in the next couple of weeks. Of course, you're going to have the issue, too, with horses missing training, so you're going to have to factor that into your handicapping to who who missed workouts that they needed and stuff, but just things for us to keep in mind as we go forward.
0: And Brandon's going to have, uh, hopefully, his Philly's going to show up here soon, dream a little dream of you. Uh, w- w- any idea when she's going to resurface?
2: You know, I got to talk to my good friend Dan Glick. We're going to find out, uh, you know, uh, if we're going to go back to Oakland. So if we do, I certainly want to go there, meet Nancy, and uh, just be there for the first time. I've never been. So uh, I was kind of raring to go up until all this shutdown with weather. If it's not COVID, all the track, you know. Based you know track shut down to covid it's shut down for just crazy snow and weather and i just got a text message from my friend out of the saudi cup they're predicting snow out there do you believe that no, no i don't believe that <laughs>
0: oh, I god it, i didn't think it ever snowed out so
2: but you got to get up bright and early i think the undercard starts at like 5 or 6 a.m with with maybe that race at 11 a.m or noon but uh, at, least, at least that won't be taking up the middle part of our day or late, late part around dinner time. So it'll be a little bit different. But, boy, I do miss Turfway at nights. So I think when you can race at night and like the way they do it, it it's just so fun, I think. So on the agree, weekends, agree. it's something I look forward to. And I kind of wish they'd run on Sundays. But, you know, I can't have They that. might
1: now. They got right. cards to make up. So they yeah. might not But I will tell you something positive. Keelan's going to let people on the racetrack this year. It's a limited number right now. We'll see how that goes. But as of right now, that's something to really look forward to. Come April, is they're going to allow people in. We'll see how many. I'm sure we'll uh, finagle our way in there somehow. But uh, that's something to truly look forward to. Yep,
2: yeah, and I hope uh, when Dream enters at Oakland, we can take the pod on the road. Take the podcast. That'd on be the road great. Trip. That'd be yeah. so fun. So, uh, but that's yeah. all I got.
0: All right, well, let's wrap it up here. Uh, this has been episode forty-one, and it was, a, it was a it was a fun episode. We got to meet Tom Amos, and, and he was outstanding and, and generous. Yeah, with wonderful time. guy,
1: wonderful guy, and apparently pretty buff too, as I understand.
0: Uh, man, I'm telling you what, <laughs> if I had to fight him, it, it, I, I, yeah, we'll just leave it at that. But anyway. <laughs> anyway, so uh, on behalf of Alan Schneider and Brandon Jaggers, this is CC brought us reminding you. Wherever you are across the world, and now in Mars, gambling money ain't got no home.